Good morning. Good morning. It's great to see everybody here this morning. If you haven't been with us, uh, we have just begun a series in the book of Ephesians titled Life in Christ, How His Story Changes Yours. And even as we begin this morning, I want you to see your, your bulletin this morning looks a little bit different. Actually, in the middle section of the bulletin, you have a spot for message notes. If you'd like to jot anything down or write anything, that is available to you. And then also we have a response card in there, which I will get to that later at the end of the service. But thank you again so much for being here this morning as we really jump in to the first week of our series. So if you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And over this series, we're going to work through Ephesians 1 all the way through chapter 6. And just as a reminder, chapters 1 through 3 are Paul basically reminding the church in Ephesus and the surrounding regions who you are in Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 are now that you know who you are in Christ, this is how you are called to live. And if you were here last week, we talked about that, how the two prevailing questions that come from this text is who are you and why are you here? And hopefully, if you were here last week, you took that and you worked through that. You know, who am I? Why am I here? And you really have thought about that. If you didn't do that last week, don't worry. You can do that again this week. But who are you and why are you here? That is the prevailing questions that we're going to see throughout the book of Ephesians. And this morning, we're going to be in chapter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And so let's begin with verse 3. It says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You know, I think one of the more difficult concepts for us as humans to get is the concept of time. I mean, time really is really difficult to understand. Just think of it like this. It is difficult to really think about the fact that there was a time whenever you weren't here. Like, for me, that's really difficult to think there was a time before me. I mean, I know it's true. History says it's true, but it's difficult to think about that. It's Difficult to think about the fact that 100 years from now, most likely, nobody's going to know who I am. Like, that's a weird concept to think about. And even for us, you know, even if you're younger, you're like, I haven't lived a whole lot. It's a weird concept to think about the fact that you used to be a baby. Like, it's just hard to think about that, right? It's hard because we honestly not are self-centered, I would say, which a lot of us are, but centered around ourselves. It's, we are the only constant in our own lives, right? We're the only ones who, I'm always around myself, so it's hard to think about life outside of me. Not only are you always centered around yourself, but it's difficult to think about the fact of something that's infinite whenever we are finite beings. We are stuck in the here and now. We're stuck in the temporary, right? And it's hard to think about the past oftentimes before us and even the future. Even more so with that, it is really difficult whenever we try and think about spiritual things. Like the transcendent realm, like life after death, like heaven, things like that are very difficult for us, right? And I think that's mainly because we're stuck in the temporary. Well, what we're seeing here this morning is, remember, Paul in Acts, we see he goes to Ephesus. He's in Ephesus for three years doing ministry with the church of Ephesus. And then he leaves there for several months. He travels around. And then he comes back by there and calls the elders of the Ephesian church to come and meet him. And he tells them, hey, look. I am going to Jerusalem. The Spirit is telling me, go to Jerusalem, but I know whenever I go there, I'm going to be persecuted. I know whenever I go there, it's not going to be good for me. Fast forward four to five years, and you see Paul writing this letter in a prison cell in Rome. So I want you to think about this. Temporarily, he is in a prison cell, and he is writing to this church in Ephesus and the surrounding regions. But what is on his mind is nothing but the temporary. 
It's, it's nothing regarding himself. It's not even about his current space and time. Look at what he chooses to talk to them about. He doesn't whine or complain. Instead, he starts off by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul could have been frustrated, right? He could have been angry. He could have said, guys, you should have stopped me. I told you this. Why didn't you stop me? I knew this was going to happen. But instead, he's too busy praising God. That's where he begins the letter to the church of Ephesus. Why is this important? Well, maybe he was temporarily in a prison cell, but while he was there physically, his mind and his heart were caught up in Christ. It was caught up in the transcendent, the thing that is not temporary, but rather in Christ. And this is what we're going to see, verses 3 through 14 this morning. It's called a doxology. A doxology is just a short hymn of praise. And in English, this is multiple sentences for us. But in Greek, in the original language, this is just one long sentence. If you ever think I'm long-winded, you don't know nothing until you talk about Paul. Like, he, this is one long sentence, verse 3 through 14, of him praising God. And he begins with that, once again, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Now, as we go in, there are some important things to understand. Who is us? He says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Who is us? Well, that's already answered in verse 1. The us are the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful followers of Jesus Christ. So anytime you see us or we in this passage, it's followers of Jesus. And then how are we blessed? By what means are we blessed? We're blessed because we are in Christ. Remember last week I talked about how in Christ is the predominant theme throughout all of Ephesians. And just this morning, in verses 3 through 14, in Christ or through Christ or in the beloved, talking about Christ, is used 11 times in verses 3 to 14. Whatever we have been blessed with, our blessing comes because we are in Christ. And then what has he blessed us with? He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That means there is nothing that he hasn't blessed us with in Christ in the spiritual realm. Which, once again, it is hard for us to wrap our minds around this because we all fall prey to the temporary and oftentimes, we rarely, if ever, think about our spiritual blessings. So that's what Paul starts with, and that's where we're starting this morning. The question for this morning is, what are our spiritual blessings in Christ? What are these spiritual blessings that Paul is spending the whole first part of his letter to the church in Ephesus? Why does he spend so much time on this? Because we have been blessed immensely in Christ. And so we're going to look at five of them this morning. The first spiritual blessing is this. We have been chosen to be holy and blameless. The first spiritual blessing is this. We have been chosen to be holy and blameless. Look at verse 4. He just finished saying that in Christ we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, you pick quite the time. As seen, we're going to be going through some of the more debated doctrines of election and predestination. But election and predestination are never something that we should run from. Like, this is in God's word. This idea of being chosen, this idea of being predestined to something is in God's word. And we need to embrace what Paul is teaching here. And so there are actually several ways to go about this. There is one of the the, the primary ways to look at it from a Reformed tradition or a Reformed perspective. And that's to say that you and I were chosen before the foundation of the world individually. In other words, God chose individual people before the foundation of the world who he would put his grace upon. Now, while that has some viable uh, statements, and maybe there's some evidence you could look at if you pile it together with God's word to say that that's what happened, I don't believe that is what this text is saying. I think it's saying something different. Rather than it saying that before uh, we were ever born, before the foundation of the world, that God chose those who would be unsaved, that he chose those who were unsaved to be saved, I think rather here God's choice 
here is not regarding who will be saved, but rather what will be the outcome of those who are saved. So hear that again. Rather than God's choice here regarding who will be saved, I think it's actually he is choosing what the outcome of those who are saved will be. Let me explain it like this. So first it starts off by saying that he has chosen us. This word us is a collective term. Us is the followers of Jesus Christ. It's a collective term, not an individual term. Not saying individually he chose us in Christ. This is collectively. We are chosen in Christ. Once again, note that this whole passage uses us and we all the way throughout as a collective people. We have been chosen in Christ. The only time in this whole chapter it looks at individuals is in verse 13 whenever it says you heard the gospel and you placed your faith in Jesus. That's the only time where it uses individual words. The second reason I would lean to the latter understanding is that Paul is speaking to people here who are already believers. He's not speaking to unsaved people. He's speaking to people who are already followers in Jesus Christ. In other words, as he writes to them, these statements are only true for those people who are in Christ Jesus, not people who are unsaved. The chosen people are the people who are in Christ Jesus collectively, which I think leads to the third reason. And I think that's what this is saying. Our election is found in Jesus Christ, not in us as individuals. Now, once again, this is putting on the big boy theological pants. I understand that. But our election is found in Christ, not in us as individuals. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Y'all, the Old Testament speaks over and over and over again about the fact that we are sinners. We are in need of a Savior. Who is going to come and save us? Well, the Old Testament, you see a lot of this specifically towards the end of Isaiah. There is a chosen one who is coming. There is the elect one, the chosen of God who is going to come and he's going to redeem a people for himself. That elect one, that chosen one is Jesus. And because Jesus is the chosen one, all who are in him are chosen. Let me read it to you like this. One scholar named Klein Snodgrass, which that is just a crazy name to begin with. Klein Snodgrass, he says this, nothing in Ephesians 1 focuses on individuals in regards to election. Rather, the text focuses collectively on those who are in Christ. This changes the theology. People become elect only when they are in the elect one, Christ. Election takes place in him and through him. And here's the main sentence I want you to hear. Individuals are not elected and then put in Christ. Rather, they are in Christ and therefore elect. They are in Christ and therefore they are elect. Which I think leads to the last point and the main thing that I would get to whenever I read this. Is it doesn't say that we are chosen to be in Christ. That would make this text be about salvation. You are chosen to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's not what it says. It says you are chosen in Christ to be holy. The choice here isn't for salvation. The choice here is sanctification. It's that the way God identifies Jesus as holy and blameless, that now is attributed to you if you are in him. He chose us to be holy and blameless. In other words, he didn't choose who would be in him and who wouldn't be. Rather, he chose what people in him would be. They would be holy and blameless because they are in Christ. I want you to think of it like this. Whenever I was in college, I went to go rent an apartment one time. And I remember as I went to this house who had all of these apartments, I went in and they said they had to run a credit check on me. 
And at this time, I was a sophomore in college, and to be honest, I had no clue what that meant. I was like, credit check. I don't even know. I don't think I have any credit. And they're like, well, we got to run your Social Security number. So they run it, and voila, they come back. There's no credit. I said, yes, I could have told you that. I don't even know what this means. And so they said, well, because you don't have any credit, we got to charge you for this and this. And before I knew it, I was out 500 bucks before I even moved into the apartment. Well, he says, you have no credit. To which I can remember asking him, okay, so how do I get credit? He's like, well, you have to have something where you buy something via credit in order to get credit. I was like, so in other words, I have no opportunity to get credit right now. He goes, no, this is how you get credit. I was like, okay, great. Well, after that, I remember talking to my brother, and he's like, Merrick, credit is essentially this. Your credit score is if you get something without fully paying for it or without paying for it, you are good for it to pay for it later on. It's like, okay, that makes sense. So your credit score just simply says, are you good for it if you say you're going to pay for something? So he encouraged me to get a credit card, which I did. He said, use it like a debit card. I know anybody in here who are Dave Ramsey fans, you just gasped under your breath. I'm sorry. But I got a credit card whenever I was in college, and I use it like a debit card. If I put 100 bucks on it in a month, then I would just pay it off of my debit card at the end. And it helped me build up credit. This is actually good, though, because later I bought a car, and I had good credit. So I got a good uh, interest rate. Then later on, whenever Emily and I got married, whenever we went and got another apartment, I didn't have to pay a lot of these initial fees because of our credit. But the whole point I'm trying to get to is this. Is whenever Emily and I got married, Emily actually came from a very different background, where it's like, no credit card, no nothing. Like, like don't worry about that aspect right now. But whenever we got married, our credit didn't merge together. It wasn't like her credit is now mine and mine is now hers, but rather she could benefit from my good credit score. So whenever we got married, we moved to North Carolina. We went to get an apartment. Because I had good credit, we could put things under my name. And Emily didn't get punished for not having credit, and I didn't get punished for being married to someone who didn't have credit. In other words, what I had could be credited to her. And this is the whole point I'm trying to get to this morning. What we have been chosen, the choice that God made before the foundation of the world is that whoever repents and puts their faith in Jesus would be credited the same way that Jesus is, as holy and blameless in his sight. And this is where Paul begins his worship of God is the fact that we have the same status as Jesus whenever we are in him. And this was God's decision before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in Christ just as he is. And why? Why would he do this? Well, that gets to the next point. Our spiritual blessing, one, is we've been chosen to be holy and blameless. Secondly, we have been predestined for adoption. Look at the end of verse 4 and then verse 5. It says this, in love, by his love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, whenever we see the word predestined, you can think of it's predetermined or the boundary has been set beforehand. It's been predestined to take place. And once again, this is a hot theological topic, a hot word. People say, you know, God has predestined everything that's going to happen. Everything is determined. Ultimately, free will is an illusion. And then you have people on the other side, they're like, no, we have free will to do all this. And and these two sides have been at each other's throats, I guess you could say, for 500 years. It really can be summed up by one story I read this week about a group of theologians who got together. And you have this one group who is just staunch. Everything is predetermined. God has determined everything. You don't have any free will. And then you have this other group over here who is all about free will. They're like, no, you, you have free will. You can make all your own choices. You can do all of these things. And, and there arose an intense and heated debate, which often happens whenever these come up, even though it shouldn't. It should promote unity. But an intense debate broke out between these theologians. And before you knew it, there were two separate factions. The predestined people were over here. The predetermined people were over here. And then the free will people were over on this side. And you have one guy in the middle. And the way he, he tells the story is basically, I decided, you know what, which one of these do I believe? Well, 
I think predestination is right, so I'm going to go over here to the predestination group. And it says he walks over to this group, and they say, hey, how, how did you come over here? He goes, well, I mean, I decided that this is what I think is right. He goes, wait a minute, you decided? No, 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 we don't believe in that. That sounds like free will. You go over there to that group. And so he sends them to the other group, and he goes to the other group, and he walks in, and they're like, oh, you finally decided to come this way. He goes, no, I didn't decide to come here. I was sent over here. And they go, what? You were sent over here? No, 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 no. You can only be in this group if you've decided to be a part. And so the whole point, thank you, some of you got that. But the whole point is, y'all, these two things don't have to be if and or. It is both and and. And I think the struggle that we have is not, we hear this word predestination and we all get, go crazy and we go, oh no, those, those people. Y'all, this is God's word. This is important for us to understand. And I think it's rich for us to understand because we have to recognize what he has predestined believers for. I don't think, once again, that this means that he predestined those. You're going to be in Jesus individually, therefore it's going to happen regardless. I don't think that's what it's saying, and here's why. I think the spiritual blessing of predestination is that God predestined those who are in Christ to be adopted as his spiritual children through Christ. Who is predestined to be adopted through Christ? Those who are in Jesus. Let me explain it this way. And I think our main struggle with this is not the word predestination. It's we don't really understand what Paul means when he says we've been adopted. You see, adoption for us is just kind of a common word, honestly, right? We all know what adoption means. If you adopt someone, that means you go to someone who isn't a part of your family, and you take them on to be a part of your family. But the first century listeners, whenever they heard this, they wouldn't have been shocked by the word predestined. They would have been shocked to hear that God has adopted them. Because adoption was entirely a different thing in first century Rome. And I'm going to rely heavily on my notes here, because William Barclay who's a renowned scholar, he actually writes extensively about this. And he says this, in ancient Rome, the family structure was based on something called the father's power. And this is interesting. The father had absolute power over his children as long as he lived. And listen to what this meant. It meant he had every right to sell his children if he chose to do so. He had every right to imprison his children if he chose to do so. He had every right to beat his children if he chose to do so. He had every right to make them work on the estate as long as he wanted to as slave. He could put them in stakes if he wanted to. Now, parents, don't get any ideas. That's first century Rome, not here. But the parent, the father had every right to do this if he so chose to do so. Even crazier is your age did not matter. If you were 50, you were still under your father's power. If you rose to some great political area or some political position you still were under your father's power if you had some great salary you know who that was that's your father's salary it's his it all goes to him age didn't matter your status didn't matter everything belonged to your father so where does adoption come into play here well adoption in first century rome could be from a family member or somebody who wasn't a family member Adoption was something entirely different. It wasn't just for orphans in Paul's day. As a matter of fact, parents were known to adopt their kids. And listen to this. Adoption had nothing to do with becoming a son in the family. Rather, it had everything to do with being named the heir of the family wealth, power, and position. So to adopt a son was to legally give them the right to the family inheritance. So adoption had less to do with being a part of a family and everything to do with what is the father's is now yours. Everything that is the Father's is now given to you on equal status. You're no longer under the Father's power. This was a lengthy, lengthy process. I tried to read into it, and y'all, honestly, it just confused me. It was a lot of you have to sell your children and then buy them back and then sell your children and then buy them back and then sell them one last time. 
and then you redeem them. And whenever you do that, they are adopted children. But this process was extensive, but it was such a big deal that this would be the case. When the process of adoption had been completed, the person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son and his new family, and he lost absolutely all rights of any old family he was a part of. In the eyes of the law, get this, he was a completely new person. So new that he, so new was he that even all of his debts and obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they had never existed. So hear me. Whenever it says that we've been predestined for adoption, this is what Paul is saying God has done for us. We were absolutely in bondage to the power of sin in our lives, but through Jesus, God took this power out of, a, out of our lives and brought his own power onto us. Essentially, he has adopted us, and he wipes out our past, and we are now new in him, which means we are heirs to everything that is his. It means we now are on equal standing with Christ. Everything that was Jesus's is now ours. This promise of predestination is not about God deciding who gets to go to heaven and who goes to hell. It is about God deciding that rather than just one son getting all of his inheritance, all of his children get to share in the inheritance of his family. You see this played out in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 verses 4 through 7 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is what God has predestined us to. Y'all, adoption, predestination, being chosen, these all really are just two, two heads of the same coin. To be chosen and predestined is to have joint status with Jesus. He is holy and blameless, therefore you are declared holy and blameless as well. Which we all know that is not true of us. There's not a single one in here who could say, I am holy and I am blameless. But because you are in Jesus, that is attributed to you. God chose to do that before the foundation of the world. But not only are you a joint heir in his status there, but you're a joint heir just like him. All that is Jesus's is now yours. He has adopted you into his family and he predetermined that everyone who is in Christ gets to be an heir just like Jesus. Your all response to this should really first and foremost be, wait, what? Everything that is Jesus's is now ours? That doesn't make any sense. Why? Why would God do this? Well, look again at verse 5 and following. It starts off by saying, in love. Because of his love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And hear this, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Why did God do this? First and foremost, it says because of his love. Simply because God is love. And he loves us beyond what we can even imagine. Not only that, but it says because of his, it was his sovereign will to do so. The very end of verse 5 says, according to the purpose of his will. This means his sovereignty. To say that God is sovereign means that he can do whatever he pleases to do. And this is what pleased God, to adopt us as sons and daughters of his, to give us the inheritance, to make us heirs, just as Jesus is. And it says, ultimately, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in Christ Jesus. Y'all, he blessed us with a relationship with him by his own grace. It has nothing to do with us, nothing about us, but simply because God is love. And he freely chose to do so. 
Y'all, knowing that you and I, if you are in Christ, are predestined, or that we are chosen, should make us burst out in worship and thanksgiving because of what God has done for us. And this is the purpose of Paul here. It's a doxology. It's a worship of God. And this should call us to worship him because of what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. So the third spiritual blessing that we have in Christ, first is we have been chosen to be holy and blameless. Secondly, we have been predestined for adoption. And third, we have been redeemed and forgiven. We have been redeemed and forgiven. And now he moves to how this has actually happened. Look at verse 7. It says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Y'all, these two words, redemption, forgiveness, it should strike emotion within us to recognize what God has done for us. Redemption. We have been redeemed, forgiven. We have been forgiven. This idea of redemption is to set somebody free. Not only is it to set someone free, but it's to ransom them. It's to go and to pay the penalty for them, to ransom them back. Now, the story of the gospel is this, that you and I are sinners. We are helplessly lost in our sin. Even worse, our sin is the reason we're separated from God. Isaiah 59.2 says that your sin has created a barrier between you and your God. In other words, there's nothing we can do to work back to God because we're the ones who put the barrier there in the first place. But to say that God redeemed us is to say that he came over the barrier. He broke the barrier. He came here. He paid the penalty for our sin that put the barrier there in the first place, and he ransomed us back to him through his son. That's what it means to be redeemed. Yo, this should strike emotion within us to recognize that God has done this for us. Mark 10, 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Christ came in the first place, to redeem humanity. Romans 5 says to reconcile us back to him and what did this redemption cost him look again at verse 7 in him we have redemption how through his blood through the penalty that he paid through the sacrifice that he made you know I grew up in a little southern baptist church I grew up listening to all the hymns and I'll be honest whenever I read this this week the first thing I thought about was what can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of Jesus what can make me whole again Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Y'all, just because we've heard it over and over again doesn't mean we should grow numb to it. This is the greatest blessing we could ever put our mind to. And our problem, once again, is we're stuck in the here and now rather than thinking about the blessings we have in Christ. Look, it doesn't just say that we have been redeemed. It says we've also been forgiven. Not just redeemed. We've been bought back and paid for, but we also have been forgiven. What does this mean? It means that God doesn't redeem us and then hold our sin over us. By no means. He redeems us, but he also forgives us. He forgets about all of that. Think of this situation. There's many parents in here. Imagine you have a 15-year-old. And if you do, I'm not talking about you or singling you out. So, yeah, there you go. So you have a 15-year-old. One day gets himself in trouble, which I know never happens. They do something unwise, which I know never happens. And, and they end up getting arrested. They get arrested. They get taken to jail. So they get booked. They're in the slammer, right? They're in jail. They get offered one phone call. 
Who do you think they're going to call? Most likely they're going to call their parents, right? I can't imagine what that phone call is like. Just as a disclaimer, this has never happened to me, and if it ever did happen to me, I wouldn't tell you about it. So they're in jail, right? They get one phone call, and they go, and who are they going to call? They're going to call their mom or dad, right? And most likely, if you're me, I'm calling my house phone, and I'm saying, please, mom, pick up. Don't let dad pick up. Please let mom pick up. My dad was the associate or assistant district attorney, and he used to always say, if you get put in jail, I'm going to make sure you stay there. I'm like, thanks, Father. I love you, too. But you're going to call, and then what's going to happen? Most likely, you start that awkward conversation. Hey, I'm in jail. Can you come get me? And they're going to do what? They're going to go, and they're going to ransom you. They're going to pay the bail money, right? And they're going to get you out, and then the ride home is going to be peaceful. <laughs> That's the best joke y'all gotten today, right? Y'all understand, the ride home is going to be Literally, it's going to be bad. It's going to go down, right? I know for me, I would have just ran. I wouldn't even have gotten in the car. I'd have just taken off. But because why? Because parents are going to hold you accountable for that, right? Like, you should be scolded. You should be walked through of, like, what were you thinking? What were you doing? But this is how great the grace of our God is, is he ransoms you, and he forgets about any wrongdoing. He ransoms you, and he never brings up the old sin or what got you there in the first place. He says, that's why I came. It's been erased. Psalm 103, 12, for as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I've separated your sin and your guilt from you. It's gone. No more. It's never going to be brought up again. This is what God did for us in Christ Jesus. Look at what Psalm 133-4 says. It says, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O oh Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. God has ransomed us. He has forgiven us. And if we kept a record of our wrongs, there would be no bookkeeping available to keep them all. But once again, I come back to why. Why would Jesus do this for us? Look again at verse 7 and following. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Don't forget that the people in Ephesus were in the wealthiest city in the world. Riches to them meant status, it meant money, and he's saying you don't understand the riches you have in Christ Jesus. Look what else he says, which he lavished, he gave wholesomely and heavily upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Y'all, we see at the very beginning God created the Garden of Eden, and he creates Adam and Eve, and he puts them in the garden, and and by all indicative purposes, they are in paradise. But Adam and Eve mess it up, right? They sin, just as we do. They sin, and they are cast out of the Garden of Eden. But what we see Paul is saying here is while paradise was lost under Adam, it is going to be united under Christ. When the fullness of time comes, he's going to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. You go over to Romans, it says creation even longs for this to come about. In Christ, everything is going to be unified. He is coming to restore all things, and this was his plan from the beginning. Y'all, in a room this size, I am positive that we have some people in here who are OCD planners. Like, they just want to plan just about everything. Don't look at your spouse. Don't make it awkward. But you have OCD planners in the room. You know, like, they're the people who want just a strict schedule. They even probably have, like, a schedule, 705, brush my teeth, 710, make the call. You know, like, there are some people that are just that rigid. I can remember whenever Emily and I, we were doing premarital counseling with, with a, a couple but one time, and he brought in his laptop, he's like, hey, I want to show you the PowerPoint I made for our honeymoon. I was like, you want to show me the what for what? 
And he starts going through, and it's a PowerPoint of this is what we're going to do here, and this is where we're going to go here. And I'm like, yeah, man, that's like, what in the world? Who makes a PowerPoint for their honeymoon? I'm like, go relax, dude. Like, like, what are you doing? But some of us are that way. Imagine if you plan a trip. Many of us are planning nature. That's where it really comes out whenever we plan something. Let's say a month from now, you're going to be gone for five days. You're going to wherever, the beach. You start planning. You, you start doing what? You look up. What do we want to do there? Okay, this is how much money we have. Let me engage in this. This is with my time and energy. I'm going to start really putting this to see what is my agenda while I'm going to be there. And how do you make your decision? You say, well, what do we want to do with the amount of money that we have? What's going to make us the most happy? Like, what are we going to enjoy the most? So you put all of your time into doing these things, and you plan. So if you go on your trip, you have a good time. And whenever you plan these things, you're delighting in them, right? Because this is what's going to happen. You're excited for this. It's what's going to happen. The whole reason I say this, y'all, is God is a master planner. He is the master planner. What you see here, before the creation of time, God had a plan. Jesus was never God's plan B. Jesus was always God's number one. It was his plan. He would create a people. He knew that sin would enter the world through our disobedience. He knew that we would need a savior. His plan from the beginning of time was Jesus. And through Jesus, he would redeem a people back to himself, a chosen people who would be holy and blameless. As you see in 1 Peter 2, 9, there would be an adopted people who would have the same rights. They would be heirs to the inheritance just like Jesus. He made a plan that in love, before the beginning of the world, he would lavish his grace upon us. You know what that should say to us? Is that you and I are not an afterthought in God's mind. Brother, we were on the forefront of it before creation ever happened. That should baffle us. What did God take pleasure in? He takes pleasure in redeeming people through his son. He took pleasure in offering up his son as the atoning sacrifice to pay for our sin and to ransom us back to him. That is the God that we serve. And Paul starts with this because it should baffle us that our adoption through Christ, our election in Christ were on his mind since before time even began. And the only response to this is worship. It's thankfulness to God for what he's done for us. What response should we have is worship. What are our spiritual blessings in Christ? One, we have been chosen to be holy and blameless. We've been predestined for adoption. We've been redeemed and forgiven. And fourth, we have been given an inheritance. We have been given an inheritance. Before we jump into this, I want you to think about something. Many of us in here have felt more anxious during this time than probably ever in our lives. I've had more people say, you know, I don't even struggle with anxiety, and I've struggled with it here, or worry, or whatever it might be. Whenever we struggle about anxiety or worry or different things like that, what are we worried about? The unknown, right? We're worried about the future. But if we could know the future, it would change the way we live right now, right? Our anxiety would go away. Our, our worry would go away. But many of us, if I were to tell you this morning, hey, I'm going to be outside, and if you come to me, I'm going to tell you what five years from now looks like. I know any college student in here would run, not walk. They would run, <laughs> right? Adults, I'm going to tell you what, what the world's going to look like five years from now. Where you're going to be five years from now. What you're going to be doing ten years from now. I know everybody in this room would want to know. Because knowing what's coming would change the way we think right now, right? Knowing the future changes the way you live in the present. And now I want you to look at verse 11 and 12. And what Paul moves to now. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined, once again, as adoption for sons, we have an inheritance in Jesus. 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We see here Paul saying, he's talked about what God did beforehand. He's talked about God's saving acts in the present. Now he's saying, you know what's going to happen in the future? We've been predestined for an inheritance. In other words, if you're in Christ, your future is secure. It is certain. It is not going to change. And so I ask again, if you know the future, how should that change how you live in the present? You know, the reason that Paul or, or another biblical writer could say, don't be anxious. The reason Jesus tells people in Matthew 6, don't be anxious about anything. What you wear, what you're going to do, don't be anxious about any of that. But seek me first. is because as followers of Christ, we know how the story is going to end. We know that God is in control. We know that God has had a plan that he's been working out. This whole time, and we should not worry because we know what the future holds. There's an inheritance for those who are in Christ Jesus. And look at how Peter def- or, or describes this in 1 Peter 1.4. He says, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The you there is plural. You know who it's talking to? Those who are faithful in Christ. Those who are followers of his. Knowing your future should change the way you live in the present. And that's where Paul moves to next. We should worship God because our future is secure. That's a spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. The fifth spiritual blessing is this. He says, we have been sealed with the Spirit. We have been sealed with the Spirit. Now, I told you earlier, verses 3 through 12, us and we is all that are used. Us, we, us, we, corporately, as a group, us and we. But then if you get to verse 13 and he talks about this, he moves to you and your individual. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, what is this saying here? This tells us how you can be in Christ. This tells us how how they became a part of the us, how they became a part of the we is they heard the gospel, which is the power of God as it's working. They heard the gospel, and they repented, and they believed in the gospel. Does that mean they did the work? No, they didn't do anything. God did all the work. We'll see that more in Ephesians 2. But they repented, and they believed. And that's how they became a part of the us. And God says whenever they did that, they were sealed with the Spirit. What does it mean to be sealed with the Spirit? Where a seal is a mark of authentication. Basically, during that time, if somebody were to send a letter from one person to the next, they would mark it with their seal to know it's authentic. And Paul's saying that God has marked us with his seal, the Spirit, basically as a down payment that we are his. Look at what he says in in Galatians 4, verse 6 again. It says, and because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit is there to be witness that we are children of God. Look at what else it says, verse 14. It says, the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This idea of guarantee is really the idea of it. he is a down payment for our inheritance. Think of it like this. Emily and I, we just bought a house. We literally just moved in yesterday. For those of you who are in here who either watched our kids or helped us move in, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. There's my disclaimer in the middle of something. But thank you all so much. Anyway, so there's this down payment aspect whenever you buy a house, right? I can remember actually whenever I went to buy my ring to propose to Emily, I remember holding the money in my hand and the jeweler grabbed it and I just didn't want to let it go. I'm like, 
is she worth it? No, I didn't ask that by any means. Like, like I'm giving away this money. She knows that's the truth. So I'm giving away this money, but it's nothing compared to whenever you buy a house. The down payment, you look at the numbers, and they give you this thing called the amortization, right? Like you see, till 2050, this is how much I'm paying you, and I'm just sitting there scratching my head. And I, it, it's hard to really say, man, this is the down payment. But what is a down payment? A down payment is essentially the first installment that assures the bank that I am good for the rest. It's a first installment that I'm going to continue to pay on this. And God's word says that the Holy Spirit is the down payment. It's the first installment that he is good to be true to his promise that one day we will receive an inheritance. We will be with him. And one thing that we need to notice here, most of your Bibles probably have a footnote at the bottom of verse 14 where it says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. There's a footnote there, and you might see at the footnote that it actually changes the end. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until God comes and redeems his possession? I think the way the NIV uh, translate this verse actually is even more helpful. The Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Titus chapter 3, or Titus chapter 2 says this. 1 Peter 2 says this, that we are now God's possession. And what this text is actually saying is that until God comes and redeems us, his possession, the Holy Spirit is the down payment that he will be true to his promise. That he will be coming back. That he will redeem all who are in Jesus Christ. That we will be fully adopted, as Romans 8 tells us. We will be fully adopted as his sons. We will be glorified with him. And Paul says this is the last spiritual blessing that should wow us. Is that he will come through on his promise. In the future, we will go and we will be with him if you are in Christ Jesus. Y'all, while we live in a temporal world, where all we see... We're the only constant that we can see at all times. And we're in a temporal world. Y'all, we may see our world the way we see it, but we should never forget that the primary actor in all of history is not us, it is God. The primary actor in your and my life is not us, it is God. And just in this passage, this is what Paul shows us. Shows us the God who in the past has been working, in the present is currently working, in the future is going to be working. Not only that, he shows us the totality of who God is, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. All of them are working to that end. And we can know this, that God is the main actor of world history. God is the stage. You can basically say it another way. It is his world and we're just living in it. And we need to sit back and we need to recognize the blessings that God has given us. The spiritual blessings and recognize that even though we fall prey to the temporary, God has blessed us. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, through and in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much, God, just for this morning. God, we thank you for your word and how you penned it through Paul and, and how he so eloquently, Lord, has walked through these texts. Or he's walked through just this truth that we see in you, the past, present, and future God. The work that you have been doing since before even the foundation of the world. And God, I praise you that he is showing us how do we praise you for everything that you've done. We bask in the glory of what you've done by the riches of your own grace, by your own sovereign will. God, we praise you this morning. And I pray, Lord, that that would be the response of everybody in this room. That we'd recognize this morning, no matter what is going on in our lives, if we are in you, we have every reason to praise you and worship you and glorify you. 
Just like Paul, temporarily in a prison, is not worried about it. He's worshiping you, God. That should be our mindset in this world. No matter what goes on around us, you are in control, and for that we can worship. God, help us respond to you this morning. And ask all these things in your precious and holy son's name. Amen. Y'all, during this time, as Mike's going to play, I just want to challenge you to respond this morning. And what I say whenever respond, this isn't just an invitation time. This is a response time. Anytime God's word is opened, we must respond. So what does your response need to be this morning? Maybe as, as we walk through this this morning, you realize that you are not in Christ. Your response this morning needs to be to repent and surrender your life to Jesus. These spiritual blessings are only to those who are in Christ. And how do you become in Christ? You hear the gospel, that he paid everything for you, and that he's redeemed you back to the Father, and you repent and you surrender your life to him. You believe in the gospel. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. Secondly, if you say, Merrick, I am a follower of Jesus, the response is obvious. It should be worship. This morning, maybe you just want to sit there and spend time just worshiping God for what he's done, for the truths that we see in his word. Maybe you just want to spend time just thanking God for what he's done for you, thanking God that you are not an afterthought. Maybe you want to spend time saying, God, I've forgotten that you're in control. I trust you. But however you want to worship him in that way, I would encourage and challenge you to do so. And the last thing I would encourage you to do so is throughout this week, open up this text. Read it. Read it over and over again. Fill your mind with things in the heavenly place, not just things that are here. We all need to be reminded to do that. So I want encourage you as we go back and we sing the hymn that we sang earlier. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Spirit three in one. Maybe you want to sit and you just want to pray and you want to worship sitting down and talking to the Lord. Maybe you want to stand. Whenever he begins singing, you're allowed to do that as well. But I would encourage you this morning, respond however you feel led to do so.